0: For 2,000 years, out of joy, the Church of Jesus Christ has spread across the globe. For 2,000 years, men, women, and children have joined themselves to this church, bonded by a common faith. For 2,000 years, these people together have by faith proclaimed what they believe to the world. Many have used a simple summary, the Apostles' Creed, to do just that. This fall at Holy Cross, with the church through the ages, we do the same. And look closer at how this simple creed has summarized the teaching of the Bible and has gone from being just what Christians believe to what I believe. God's job is to forgive sins, and so that's what uh, we do. But, But in fact, this idea of the forgiveness of sins, believe it or not, is actually utterly unique in religious thought. Like, what we're talking about this morning is unlike anything else that you'll find in any other world religion, any other world system, any other philosophical system. It is something completely and utterly unique. And if you've never heard that, if you've never really heard about what that means, the forgiveness of sins, it's my joy to tell you it's not a coincidence that you're here this morning. If you have heard it, even believe it, and yet struggle to live it, it's my joy to tell you, that it's not a coincidence that you're here this morning. So if you have your place in Romans chapter 3, if you'd stand, that's our practice here, as we, uh, as we stand under the authority of God's Word preached. We're going to be reading um, verses 21 through, uh, through 26. This is God's Word to us. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by Faith, And this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? God, we are coming to hear from you this morning... All of us need that. Because if we've just shown up to hear another talking head, we have heard enough of them this week. There are enough talking heads talking at us, trying to explain the world to us. We need the God of the universe to come and not just explain the world, but explain us, explain himself, to teach us of his grace. And so, Lord, we ask that you would come and you would do that this morning. No matter what we're bringing into this room, I pray that we would leave here, knowing the power of your presence. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do this for your glory's sake. Preach your gospel to us, Lord. Let Jesus and all who he is, all that he has done, let that come out and come to the forefront and let the one who speaks fall away, Lord, because you alone hold the words of eternal life. And so we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So if you've been to Holy Cross for a while, you know that probably twice a month, it's about twice a month. We, um, during our confession of faith that comes right after the sermon, we confess the Apostles' Creed. And if you're anything like me, as you've read it, um, and, and we come to the end, um, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the forgiveness of sins. Um, like when we come to that part, it seems like an afterthought. As if they're writing this creed and all of a sudden they were like, oh, I forgot about forgiveness. we got to throw forgiveness in there because it's, it's at the end and it seems strange. Why isn't it towards the beginning? Uh, you know, they get through God the Father, Jesus, the Spirit, even the Church, communion of saints, like, oh, forgiveness, forgot about it. It's actually not the case. The The placing of this phrase is very intentional. But it's also not something that's simply tacked on, as if that's kind of an addendum to Christianity, kind of a, a side issue. Forgiveness of sins isn't a side issue at all. It's it was added where it was added with a conviction. The conviction that those strange to hear is no less true. And it is this. That the forgiveness of sins is not only the central doctrine of the Christian faith. But it's one of the keys that makes Christianity unique. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we take a walk through Romans 3. And we're going to be looking at it in three ways. There's an outline, as always, in your bulletin. We're going to be looking at um, the need of forgiveness, the means of forgiveness, and the results of forgiveness. Okay? The need, the means, and the result. And what we're going to see is a rewording, in fact, of a famous statement by the 16th, uh, 16th century reformer Martin Luther. What we're going to be seeing is this that the church rises or falls on belief in the forgiveness of sins. The church, the Christian church, rises or falls on its belief in the forgiveness of sins. Okay? Well, let's get started. This is an amazing passage, and and honestly, it's incredibly dense. Um, As I was getting to this this week and studying it, I, I, um, you know, life happens, ministry happens, you get a a late start on things, and I thought to myself, why did I pick one of the most exegetically dense pieces of scripture to preach on this week, and here I'm already behind. That's just what happens. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be skimming the surface a little bit, because we just don't have time. You could preach for three weeks on this text. Um, But what we're going to do is start by talking about our need for forgiveness, Look at verse twenty-three. This classic. This is a classic verse. Um, I I became a Christian in college, and I was eighteen years old. And I can remember hearing this verse for the first time and not having any clue what to do with it because I didn't really understand the Bible at all. It's a very short verse, very easily stated. Paul says, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." Now, let me back up for a second. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. You'd love Paul. Paul was um, he was not a Christian his whole life. In fact, most of his young life, he was raised uh, in a way that when Jesus came on the scene and when he became uh, aware of Christians, he hated them and he wanted to destroy them. So much so that he, went to ta- from, he got permission from religious leaders to go from town to town, drag Christians out of their homes, throw them in jail, and or kill them. That's Paul. But then he had an experience where he actually met the risen Jesus and everything changed for him. That's kind of what Jesus does. He breaks into our lives. Anyway, you, you love Paul. But in, in the first two chapters of this letter, the letter that Paul's writing to the Romans, he's building a case. And the case is this that both Jews and non-Jews, okay? And non Jews in the Bible are called Gentiles. Two kinds of people in the Jewish worldview Jews and everybody else. Everybody else are called Gentiles. Okay, so if you read that word in the Bible now, you know what that means. So, Jews and Gentiles, that both groups of people are in the same boat. Now, that doesn't probably make sense, let me explain. To those that Paul was writing to, when when Paul was talking about Jews, when he'd write to a community about Jews, uh, he would, in, in our way of looking at it, it would be a lot like thinking about your typical religious people, Okay. They're moral, they're ethical, they've got the right rules, they keep them, um, they they are nice, generally pretty good people, right? Gentiles were not. Something we often forget, uh, probably because we zoned out when we were uh, in, in world history class, right? Right? Most of you all zone out in world history class, some of you are zoning out now. Uh, but in, in world history class... Um, Pagan religions, and I don't mean that as a, as a pejorative, I mean that is actual what it is. Pagan religion in the ancient world was non-ethical. What I mean is that it didn't have a, a code of ethics attached to it. I don't know if you've read pagan mythology, the gods weren't entirely ethical creatures... Right? And so ethics were not part of religion. Religion in the ancient world, in the pagan world, was about getting the deity to do for you what you needed them to do. If you need your crops to grow, you do something. If you need someone to fall in love with you, you do something. If you need um, money and prosperity, you do something and the God does it for you. See how that works? And oftentimes it involved giving them some kind of sacrifice. Food, um, money, something. Okay? So So Gentiles were seen as your kind of generally unethical, non-religious type people. Religion made no bearing in their lives as we would understand it in their day-to-day. Instead, it was simply, I need to do this to get the God to do for me what I need him to do, or her. So in terms of lifestyle, Paul had spent the first two chapters of this letter to the Romans to point out that both Jews and Gentiles, the moral people and the immoral people, In our frame, the religious people and the irreligious people are all, they all have the same problem. And he sums that up here in chapter 3. Which is why he says, right before our verse, that there is no distinction. There's no distinction. That means that whatever comes next, when he says there's no distinction, whatever comes next encompasses both groups of people. Okay? And what comes next is this phrase. All have sinned. Now... Some of you hear that and you shut off because sin to you is like some violation of somebody's peccadilloes, uh, some select set of maxims. But you see, Paul doesn't do that. Think with me. If, if Jews and Gentiles, the religious and the irreligious, the moral and the immoral are all sinners, they've all sinned, then sin must be more than the breaking of a few select rules that one group of people generally understood as conservative like, but everyone else doesn't. Sin is something more than just a select morality. And in the Bible, that's true. The Bible presents that three-letter word, sin, as a kind of a technical term for a relational betrayal. Betraying a person. Not a code, right? In in our country, we understand injustice, we understand um, breaking of a law as something done to a code, not to a person, necessarily. But in the Bible... It's about a person. It's about God. We were made for God, to delight in God, and to depend on God. But in time, we came to believe that God couldn't be trusted. He can't be trusted. He's against us. He's not for us. He is he's holding us back. And so we needed to be independent of him. And so what we did is we broke relationship with him. We turned away from him. We betrayed him. We spurned him, sinned against him. Sin is a betrayal. Is a betrayal against a person. And that betrayal, like all betrayals, brings a few things. First and foremost, it brings guilt. All betrayals bring guilt. You know this. You've been betrayed. You've done the betraying. So have I. Betrayals bring guilt. Brings guilt before God. But also it ruined humanity. So that now all of us, by nature, are sinners. And it alienated us from God. And here's why this matters. So listen close. Paul is saying, in this one little terse verse, that everyone... Everyone is in that boat. Not just a few people. Not just this group over here that we can look at and scorn. You know, not not this group of heathens over here or this basket of deplorables over here. Everyone is in the same boat. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That means we were meant to reflect his glory, but now we don't. Okay? Maybe I need to be clearer. Jews and Gentiles, religious, irreligious, moral and immoral. Paul says there is no distinction. Now, some of you are thinking right now, Rick, of course there's a distinction. I know a good person when I see one. And you do. And you're right. Which would only be an issue if what Paul is saying is that the opposite of sin is being good. But what if the opposite of sin isn't being good? What if the opposite of sin is dependence? What if it's love for God? What if it's trust in God? You see... Religious people, of whom many of us are them, right? Religious people sin by trying to earn God's favor. We do things for God to get him to do what we want, which is funny because that's the way the Gentiles lived. We try to earn God's favor. We live in hypocrisy. We refuse to love God. We want to simply offer him our obedience, not necessarily our whole person, not our love. Irreligious people sin by seeking satisfaction apart from God, by using other people for themselves, and by refusing to love God. Paul's point, and mine, is that neither one is better than the other. There is no distinction. All have sinned, and all, in the Greek, means all, right? We have all broken relationship with God. We're all guilty before God. Later in this book, in the same letter to the Romans, Paul is going to say in chapter 6 that the wages of sin, what we earn for that sin, that we've all done because there is no distinction, is spiritual death, which the Bible would understand as hell. Bottom line, Paul is saying that all of us need forgiveness. But, here's the thing. We all get that. Every one of us gets that, even if we may not even believe in a God and struggle with believing that there's any kind of objective morality. Uh, My guess, though, is that even if that's true of you, you struggle with a sense of not measuring up, of fearing being found out, of having that nagging sense that something ain't right. So what do we do about that? Well, let me give you our normal options, okay? The first is... This idea that God will simply overlook sin. This is the thought that God kind of just turns a blind eye to whatever wrongs we do. And he just kind of passes over it and doesn't think about it. It's just kind of, this is that mindset that God's job is to forgive. And so this is what he does. He kind of just ignores it. Um, He just doesn't look at them. And on the surface, this sounds great, right? This always sounds great until we dig a little bit. Because this idea only works as far as we understand our own brokenness. Because my guess is that if you're here this morning, if you're right there, if if that's what you're thinking forgiveness is, there are certain things for which you think God should not overlook. Right? There's a certain degree, because we all live on a spectrum, we all consider ourselves on a spectrum, and we line that up, because I don't care who you are, we all look at each other and we go, well, I'm doing better than him, not better than her, but I'm... and we line ourselves up on a spectrum and we think, everyone to this side of me is good. If you're on this side of me, ooh, God's going to get you. And it always seems to be right next to us. Isn't that funny? And so the way this works is everything over here on this side of us, we go, God, God would be unjust to not judge that. But us? Us? Look, when it comes to us, we always have our mitigating factors, right? We have our, I mean, I didn't mean to do that. My life's been really hard. You haven't met my parents. You haven't met my kids. Like, we, we have these things that kind of mitigate or kind or of take away what we think we deserve. We want to believe better of ourselves. But Paul says that all have sinned. On the other hand, so that's on the one side where where my guess is there are things we don't believe God should overlook. Just our stuff. But on the other hand, I want you to think of it this way too. If God really is being betrayed by us, if that's really what sin is, if sin is relational betrayal, and the Bible puts that relational betrayal on the level of adultery. And and so if God is, if we are betraying God in that kind of way, and he just kind of ignores it, what does that say about us? What does that say about you and me? Because if we really think about it, that's not forgiveness at all. That's indifference. That's indifference. That means I don't really matter to him. You you might not believe me. Uh, Think through the metaphor we just used. If... If, if you're married, or if you're not, just imagine being married, and your spouse were to commit adultery, and you were to go, eh, no big deal. Or the other way around, you were to commit adultery, and they go, oh, n- no big deal. Do they love you? Really? If they love you at all? They're not even affected by it. It just kind of blows over them. Nothing. You see, it sounds really cool, but this idea is really terrible, because what it means is that we don't matter to him. So that's the first option, God overlooks sin. But the second is this, I'm going to perform really good, I know I'm messed up, but I'm going to perform a lot, and I'm just going to hope that God is merciful, right? This is the more religious option, uh, and this is the thought that, like, no one's perfect, no one's perfect, but God helps those who help themselves, I know it's in the Bible somewhere, actually it's not, but uh, God helps those who help themselves, and so we fail, sure, but our good must outweigh our bad, right? It must. That's an interesting thought. Let me ask you. How much is enough? Do you know? How much do you have to perform before God will be cool with you? Because at the end of the day, I perform and God is merciful is really I perform and I hope that he's merciful. And that's the way of most religious outlooks on things. But let me ask you another question. The first is how much is enough? The second is this. How can you be certain you've done enough to appease God or or better, how how can you be certain you've done the right things? Listen to me because this is important. Indifference and appeasement are not forgiveness. They're not forgiveness. Indifference to what we've done and appeasement are not forgiveness. In the one the weight of the offense is never felt. In indifference, the weight of the offense is never felt. And in the other, vengeance, justice, is not exacted upon you. It's enacted by you. You're dealing with it. And so indifference is the way of most Western secularism, and appeasement is the way most religions and shame-based cultures act. But listen, for forgiveness to be forgiveness, the full weight of the offense must be felt, right? Right? And, and, it has to be dealt with. For forgiveness to be forgiveness, the full weight of our offense must be admitted and experienced. Of our, our betrayal of God and others is a big deal. It is a big deal. But in addition, the weight of it must be dealt with. But how can this be? Well, Paul tells us. And that brings us to the means of forgiveness. Look down at verses 21 and 22. Paul says, But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, or made known, uh, made visible, apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Now stop there. If you're following in your own Bible, you've already come across a little problem, or at least something sounded weird, because most of your Bibles say, um, most of your Bibles say the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all, who believe, okay? Now, um, this is a little technical, so let me explain. When Paul talks here about the righteousness of God, what he means, that word righteousness in the Bible means faithfulness to a promise um, or, or, or being in the right. It's a legal category, being judged in the right, okay? Now, here's why this is important. Right when sin entered the world, right at the beginning, Genesis chapter three, sin enters the world, God makes a promise right then and there to make it better. He promises, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make this right. He promised to deal with sin. He didn't ask us to deal with it. He promised to do it. And so for him to do so, for him to deal with sin, to answer his promise, is his righteousness. That's God's righteousness. When Paul says that this righteousness, this answering of his promise has been revealed apart from the law, he means it's apart from what we do, apart from a code that we keep. The law was great, the law was perfect, but our problem isn't that we don't have the right rules. <laughs> the law could, couldn't work for us because it was, it, it, it's not the law that was messed up, it's, it's us, we're messed up, okay? That's what Paul means there. But then he says that the law and the prophets, and by that he means the Old Testament, bear witness to this righteousness. What Paul is saying there is what he, he's, he's trying to get across the idea that the Old Testament is the story of God answering his promise from Genesis 3. He's going to answer his promise. He's going to be righteous, show himself righteous. But God's answering of that promise came through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is why most scholars now believe that when Paul says the, that, um, when, what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the faithfulness of Jesus, not faith in Jesus. And, and the translation can be either one. And that is because God's righteousness, his answering of his promise... ...is revealed in the work that Jesus did. You with me? And I, I got a little technical. Just stay with me. I'm going, to, I'm going to show how that works in a second, but skip down to verse 24. Because Paul says, he says, all have sinned in verse 23... ...and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus... That word justified is another technical term. I told you this passage was dense. Maybe you didn't believe me. It's another technical term for being made right with God. It doesn't just mean having your sins canceled. It means being declared by God to be righteous. To be one who has kept their promises. How do we get that? Paul says we are justified by God's grace as a gift. Let me say that again. Because if you've never been in a church that's preached the gospel, this is totally new to you. So I need you to listen close. We are justified, made right with God by God's grace, which is an unmerited favor, given as a gift. When's the last time you worked hard for a birthday present? You didn't. Of course you didn't. It was a gift. So let me tie this together. God shows his righteousness by justifying us. His righteousness being... his answering his promise to deal with sin. He shows that by justifying us... by his grace as a gift. But this is accomplished through redemption... through through redemption that he talks about... the faithfulness of Jesus, okay? Now, I know you... check back in if you checked out... because I'm coming out of the technical side of it. What we just talked about is way better than appeasing... It's way better than appeasing God through performance. Because he gifts justification through Jesus' faithfulness. He gifts it to to us through Jesus' faithfulness, not through ours. It's not appeasement. It doesn't come through our faithfulness. It comes through Christ's. But it's also not overlooking. And here's why. Let's look at the initiative of God. Look down at verse 25. Paul says... This is true of Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now stop there. I've warned you every time, it's going to get teachy again, so I need you to come back and and stick with me as much as you can. Alright? That word propitiation is the translation of a Greek word, the Greek word uh, hilasterion. You're like, what? Why is he talking about Greek? Well, it's, it's helpful. In the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that is the word that is translated mercy seat. Well, that's helpful, Rick. What the heck's a mercy seat? I'm about to tell you. Be patient. All right, so a mercy seat. In in the temple of God, what you'd have as you walked into the temple or the tabernacle, which is the tent that preceded it, um, there were various degrees of holiness, and only certain people could go past certain things. And as you came into the innermost part, it was called the holy of holies. Only one dude could go in there and only one time a year. He was the high priest. He'd enter there one day a year. It was the day of atonement. And in this Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, maybe it looked like that. I don't know. Uh, Ark of the Covenant. Above the Ark of the Covenant was this glowing cloud called the Shekinah. It was the glory cloud. It's God's special presence. And so what the what the high priest would do on that day of atonement, the day in which he was making atonement for the sins of the people, is he would come in there. And in the Ark of the Covenant are the Ten Commandments. They are the listing of all of God's, the the way in which we were designed to be. The Ten Commandments are not a code to live up to. They were our original design. This is what humanity is supposed to be. And they are things we break every day. And he would come in there and God is over that. And as God is looking down on our, a reminder of our failure, the high priest would enter in. And above the ark was this thing called the mercy seat. And there on the mercy seat he would put the blood. So as God was looking down on our failures, between our failures and God would come the blood of the sacrifice and he would pass over it. That blood went on the mercy seat, the hilasterion. And Paul says, this is what Jesus did. Forgiveness, and you've heard me say this before if you've been here. Forgiveness is always the offended person... ...bearing the weight of the offense for the offender. You follow that? Let me say that again if you're new, because you've never heard that. So let me say it again. Forgiveness is always the offended person... Bearing the weight of the offense for the offender. You're like, I don't, I don't really believe that. Really? If Josh steals 20 bucks from me, I have two options. I can get my 20 bucks back. He's got to pay me. That's called justice. Or I can forgive him. And if I forgive him, I'm out 20 bucks. Right? He pays or I do. Forgiveness is always the offended person bearing the weight of the offense of the offender. And so God came in Jesus and did just that. He climbed on the cross, placed himself suspended between heaven and earth, suspended between the glory of God and all of our failures. And there, in between the two, He put his blood. He became the mercy seat. and he bore the full weight of God's wrath for sin. here's where this gets interesting. That word, hilasterion, most of your Bibles translate as propitiation. Okay? Propitiation means to turn away wrath. But we struggle with that. We don't struggle with the word propitiation because most of us don't know what that means. And that's just like another churchy word and we go, whatever, moving on. But to say that What Jesus did was to turn aside wrath doesn't seem to click with us. And we struggle with that because we can't fathom a God who can be angry at sin and still have compassion on us. How can you be angry at sin and still have compassion on us at the same time? How can that be? Friends, that is what forgiveness is. Paul says here that God set forth Jesus. God set forth Jesus. God the one who was angered, took the initiative with us to bear our sin, to turn away his own just wrath for sin. It is not as if God was appeased by Jesus... Jesus came along, he's the good boy, and he appeases the angry father, right? That's what a lot of us end up thinking about, that God is some kind of raging, maniacal, evil person. And Jesus comes along, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, really nice, really good, Birkenstock's robe, whole thing. And he appeases that angry dad. No. To believe that is to forget what we said just several weeks ago when we talked about Jesus being fully God. Jesus is fully God. In Jesus, God was taking the initiative to do two things. To expiate our sins, which means to wipe them away, remove them. And to propitiate, which means to turn away his wrath. He did both. And Paul says, that is how we are made right with God. Okay? And that brings us to the result of forgiveness. Look at verse 26. Paul says, this whole thing was to show God's righteousness at the present time... so that he might be both just... and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay? Listen close. All have sinned. Paul is super clear on that. Later, like I said, he's going to say... the wages of sin is death. It's hell. If God overlooks sin... if he overlooks evil... if he overlooks betrayal... he both shows he doesn't care... And he shows that he isn't just. And I know, look, I know, you're like, I don't see myself as that bad. I get that. Neither did I. It doesn't matter how we see us. The reason we don't see ourselves that bad is because we're using the wrong standard. You use the dude next to you. God says, no, 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 the standard's me. The standard's me. When we place our faith in Jesus, when we stop trying to hope in our appeasement, stop trying to hope in his indifference, we are united to Jesus, which means his death becomes our death. His perfect life becomes credited to us. And That means that God is shown to be just. God did not overlook sin. He judged it. In all of his holiness, God judged Sin, that is never the question. The question is not, will my sin be judged? The question is always, who will bear the judgment for my sin? Is it me? Or is it Jesus? Some people not Christianity because it seems too good, right? Too free, that can't be right. Listen, God's forgiveness is not free. God's forgiveness is not free. No forgiveness is free. It's free to us. It's free to us. But it was insanely costly to God. Jesus bore our judgment so that we might bear his blessing. So God is shown to be just. But at the same time, we are shown to be justified. Which means that our sins are really dealt with. We're not hoping that God will be merciful... We know that he has been in Jesus. We don't, we're not hoping he's just going to overlook something, but maybe if I do something really bad, he won't, because everyone over here, he doesn't overlook, but everyone here and over, he does. God is just in how he dealt with sin. And through faith in Christ, we are justified. Friends, that is why everything hinges on this belief. The church rises or falls on belief in the forgiveness of sins, because if the forgiveness of sins isn't true, why are you here? Why am I here? Why are you paying me to be here? That's crazy. The last result, though, I think, honestly, if if I'm being honest with you, is probably the most important. And that's certainty. Relationships are based on security, aren't they? Ever tried to be in a relationship with someone? I know you have. You know that person that, you, that you've tried to be in a relationship with and you're never quite sure where you stand with them? Where, where do I... Do they, do they like me? Do they not like me? they respect me? Do they hate me? Where do I stand? It's really hard, isn't it? It's impossible. When we proclaim, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. That is a declarative, a final statement. But some of us, though, we, we don't buy this at all, right? If you're in this room and you lean towards appeasing of those two options I mentioned, my guess is you're, you're one or the other, maybe somewhere in the middle. But on your bad days, you're going you're gonna to re- re- resort to one of them. If you lean toward appeasing, it is both offensive and terrifying that we cannot appease God. And you know what I mean, don't you? You hate the idea that this bar that you've set up, that you're very proud of, I have this bar and I know I can reach it. When you find out it was never, ever high, you thought it was up here. You just found it, it's like, it's an inch off the floor. It's nowhere near high enough. You hate that idea because you're awesome. And you know it. I'm awesome. Except in all the ways that you're not. Which you don't ever tell anybody about. You hope nobody sees, but they do. I mean, at the end of the day, you don't think God should care about those ways anyway. He should only care about the ways in which you are awesome. But you're also terrified... Because to believe that you can't appease God means that you're going to have to place your life in the hands of someone that you can't secure with your work. You just simply have to trust. But let me ask you something. If that's you this morning, let me ask you something. Aren't you tired? I mean, I mean really. Aren't you tired? It gets really... Wearying performing all the time. Look, I'm staying on a stage. I'm kind of a performer. It gets tiring performing all the time. I want you to know that I know that you work really, really hard. I know you do. I know you're constantly looking around seeing if you're doing enough. I know that when you feel like you're not, you just start comparing yourself to others because you can always find someone who's not doing as well as you are. But let me tell you something you're not doing enough, and you can't, and God's not asking you to. You're climbing a ladder that you leaned against the wrong wall. Jesus did enough. And he loves you in all of your mess. But some of us don't want to buy any of that because we we lean towards indifference. Right? That God just kind of doesn't care what we do. And what that means is that we can be forgiven, quote unquote, and still carry on with what we've done because he doesn't really care anyway. In other words, we don't have to believe that we have an impact on another person. We want to be left alone. We want to be left alone to do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it. To seek satisfaction wherever we want and have no consequences. And we often cover this with this kind of um, self-deprecating, I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive me. Listen, if you've ever said that, can I tell you, your God has not forgiven you. Because your God is not the God of the Bible. It's you. You can't forgive you. So you're your own God. You see the irony, don't you? The appeaser comes off as really arrogant. They look really arrogant, but they're really terrified. The the person who leans towards indifference comes off really humble... But really, they're super arrogant. Because they want to be able to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. Listen to me. God's love is more amazing, more powerful, and more fierce than you can imagine. And this is why Christianity is so revolutionary. God was sinned against. God was the offended party. Let us make no mistake about that. He did nothing to warrant what we did and what we continue to do. God was betrayed, but God has pursued you. God has forgiven you in Jesus. Because in Jesus, he bore the weight of his own judgment for sin. Which means that you can know right now that you are forgiven by God. Now and forever. You don't have to guess. You don't have to worry that it's not enough. Hope that in time God will be merciful or believe the lie that you, once you trust in Jesus, get a clean slate. That is a lie. Jesus doesn't give you a clean slate. Jesus gives you a slate that is chalk full of his righteousness. So before God, You stand with his record and not yours. You aren't just acquitted. You are reconciled to God. Pleasing to him. Because we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Would you pray with me? Lord, over all these things, we ask that you would just work in our hearts. Because I know, my friends, I know myself... Uh, I feel like I vacillate day to day between appeasement and indifference, between wanting to think that I can make you like me and other times feeling like you don't really care what I do and so I can just keep doing it. Father, have mercy on us. By your spirit, open our hearts for those who have never heard that before, who have never um, even begun to wrestle with the claim that Jesus, his death, his life, that is what makes us right before you. I pray that you would press that into their hearts, that today would be the day of salvation for the rest of us, Lord, who just struggle mightily to live that out before you, but also before others. I pray that you would dig that into our hearts, that we would know the glorious freedom of the children of God, freedom that is born out of knowing that God is even though we are sinners, had compassion on us. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That he loved us and gave himself for our sins. That we would, we would grasp that in all of its glory and live out a life of freedom and praise from it. Make this true at Holy Cross that it might be true across our city and the world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.